Um, so right now I'd like to introduce to you uh, Hayden Karuth. I don't know, many of you know him. So I asked Hayden to preach today in a sermon series that we're doing called Integrity and Influence. So many of you may not know that Hayden was a Methodist pastor for many years. And then after he did that, I believe he toured through the nation as a blues, a blues musician. So you've probably noticed he's a really fantastic blues guitarist. And then he taught music in middle school and high school and is now retired from that. So I'm excited to hear what, what he has to bring for us today. So let's give him a warm welcome. All righty. Woo! It's hot. Yeah, everybody can hear me, right? Uh, can I just second, you know, give an amen to the uh, three cheers for the sound crew? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. For a church our size to have uh, this quality is just pretty amazing. And all of the band was saying, huh, we sound pretty good. It's like, oh yeah, that, that, that talent knob finally works, you know, <laughs> so just push that up to nine and here we go. <laughs> yeah, and thanks also to Emily for the invite. Um, it's really something to be part of um, this um, pretty small clan of folks known as Emily's preaching friends. So um, thank you very much. And I, apart from funerals and weddings, for Sylvia's family. I have not preached in decades. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I told M that this will only take an hour, so. <laughs> yeah, you've heard the joke. If you go to church a lot, you've, you've seen this, you know, the Preacher takes off the watch, little kid says to his dad, because everything means something, right? Everything is symbolic. So, dad, what does that mean? And dad says, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> absolutely nothing. Well, it is presidential election time again, and no matter who you are rooting for, I think we all brace ourselves for the inevitable scandal that will damage the hopes of a candidate, the trust of their constituency, and our faith in the democratic process. It hasn't happened yet, but, you know, the clock is ticking. And the law of probability. You know it's going to happen because power, idealism, ambition, and foolishness seem to always travel hand in hand. So this morning I want us to think together about that happen, how that happens in our lives by taking one step back and looking, how, looking at how it happened in the life of David. He was the most powerful leader in the history of Israel. He was the hero of a nation. And if I may use the word progenitor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, scrabble, right? Yeah. No, he was the progenitor of the Messiah. They traced his lineage back to King David and it was like, done, good enough. He didn't just win an election, David won the favor of God through his love, his faithful, faithfulness, his obedience. And it's quite an impressive story. It's a long story. We're not going to tell it all. But 
that is not how the story ends. And the part of the story we're going to tune into today is kind of like the last chapter of the book. And then what follows is a long, miserable epilogue that you wish hadn't been written. So as we do with presidential candidates, we might wonder what happened to David? What happened? And I don't know, in your circumstances, in your life, you might be saying this week, holy Moses, what happened? What happened? I was not looking for that. But first I want to tell you about three important lessons I have learned from the most important person in my life. And I bet you think I'm going to say Jesus because we're in church. But it's actually my spouse of almost 43 years, Sylvia. Yay. Yes. Yes, indeed. She is a woman of rare wisdom. This is a commercial. And integrity. Um, I married up. Way up. Okay. So first lesson. Feed the cats their breakfast before you make your own. See? Yeah, yeah. All right. There are several reasons for this. Most importantly, because they do not have opposable thumbs, so they can't open the door and grab the dish or scoop out the food. And I believe that the reason cats do not have opposable thumbs is that if they did, they would quickly come to rule the planet. And according to my understanding of Scripture, this is not God's plan. (laughs) Not for our world, anyway. Another reason for feeding our cats before eating my own breakfast first is that I am less likely to forget. And there's nothing sadder than a hungry cat. I also get to pet the friendly one, we have three, the friendly one as she starts to eat, and that's kind of a thrill. Uh, But most importantly, it's important to feed them because they're counting on us. Second lesson, also having to do with food, never take the last serving of anything left on the table without offering to share it with someone who might also want it. So, potatoes, you grab the bowl and you're looking at, that's about one serving, I really want that. But you say, anybody else want to share these potatoes with me? In a family with seven kids, this policy circumnavigated countless arguments and I think built character at the same time. Today, uh, to this day, Sylvia's siblings, many of whom I count as my best friends, are the most gracious, generous, and considerate people I have ever met. So checking with folks about the end of the potato bowl became a lifestyle for them. Who knew? The third lesson, now I'm going to get really serious. The third lesson is the one I think of at least once every week. I was pastoring in the mid-1980s and Sylvia was getting her master's in social work at the U of M. And I will never forget, I remember where I was standing I will never forget the day she explained to me what would be obvious to everyone, except Captain Obvious. She told me I was a white, middle-class, educated, middle-aged male living in North America, 
and as such was in possession of privileges of which I was completely unaware. I said it wasn't my fault, right? I didn't choose to be part of the oppressive ruling class. <laughs> Wrong place, right time, vice versa. No dice, that didn't work. I tried again, I said, it's not my fault. This is who I am now. I, I, I can't change that. And she agreed with me. No, she said, you did not choose this life and you cannot change who you are now. Nevertheless, and that's a really important word. Nevertheless, these privileges are still yours. You benefit from them, so you are responsible for what you do with them. That's a wise woman. Nevertheless, these privileges are still yours. You benefit from them, so you are responsible for what you do with them. Since that time, I have learned that our sense of power and privilege is really context sensitive. It depends on who you're thinking about, who your friends are, what your neighborhood is like, and so on. For example, uh, my middle school students never believed they had power in the school setting. But if I accidentally, and it was always an accident, trampled on their rights, the protest was quick and loud. But I have a right and when they demanded that those rights be observed, I would tell them they had the right to be respected and loved. Additionally, the U.S. Constitution confers certain other limited rights upon all citizens of our country. Everything beyond that narrow scope is a privilege. A privilege is something that we didn't earn. A privilege is more like grace than a paycheck. Um, we might not feel privileged or powerful. I don't think too many hands would go up this morning. Not in that 1% uh, sense. But this is where I have to think about context. And I do it often. In a global context, the fact that I sleep under a roof that protects me from weather is a privilege. I have the privilege of waking up in a house with electricity and running water so I can make coffee after I feed the cats. <laughs> I know that we will have food to eat. The armed conflicts that my country is involved in are not happening in my backyard or my village. I will be able to stay put in my home without fear of persecution or violence or prejudice. A privilege. And I have known just a few people who could not make these assumptions that I just rattled off. I've known somebody who, if they paid the rent, that meant that for the next two weeks, they would be eating only rice and beans. And they would only eat one meal a day. And this was somebody living in America. 
Uh, others choose between life-saving medications and food. Um, I'm not wealthy in the American context, but I am extravagantly rich in the global context. I am privileged. I also have power. And again, maybe like you, I don't usually feel very powerful. Context, right? In the school setting, I was keenly aware of the power differential between me and the building administration. Really, teachers get a knot in their stomach just like kids when they hear their name on the PA. <laughs> Mr. Carruth, will you please um, report to the office? And the kids all say, oh, oh what'd you do? <laughs> so I was keenly aware of this. But those folks were likewise aware of this dynamic uh, in their relationship with the central office of the district. And those folks aware of it in their relationship to the folks in Lansing and then on up to Washington and so on. But on the other hand, as a teacher, I possessed tremendous power with my students. The first thing I always had to say when I asked one of them to come talk with me in the hallway, you know, one of these, would be, don't worry, you're not in trouble. <sighs> and they were relieved. A quiet word to a middle schooler was usually all that was required. The fact that I was saying that word amplified its volume ten times. I didn't have to amplify it. So many of us feel chewed up and spat out by our jobs, our relationships, our families. It's really almost laughable to affirm, yes, I have power. And it's probably not large or impressive power. Not the power of a presidential candidate, certainly. But there is always a lever that we can move that will create change. And the fulcrum of that lever is choice. Even when it seems I have no options, or I may have a few, but I really don't like them, there are still choices that I can make. Uh, I think Sylvia is used to it by now. When we're watching one of those PBS detective shows, I just hate it when, you know, the sergeant comes to report and says, I'm so sorry we did this bad thing. We had no choice. I said, no choice? Come on, man. You always have a choice. The architecture of our universe was established by a righteous and just God who always gives us a choice. It's reality. That's how it works. So there is no place, no situation, no dilemma in which choice does not exist. And because God loves us, and will help us, we can always find our way to the next choice. We might not like all of the consequences, but we always have a certain amount of power in our circumstances. A lever, a fulcrum, 
a choice to make. Now this brings us at last, you were probably wondering, to King David. We heard last week uh, in his adolescence, he killed the giant Goliath. Uh, He loved, he was completely devoted to his best friend, Jonathan. He was mature beyond his years and he had compassion on this crazy king who was trying to kill him. And he even developed his leadership potential and started leading a small band uh, that eventually became uh, an army. As an adult, he became the great warrior king of the Fertile Crescent, who expanded and defended the borders of his fledgling nation against what seemed like constant attack. His reign was marked by honor, prosperity, international respect, and really a great love for God. And then, and I'm reading from 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, and then in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent his commander Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Make a mental note right there. Late one afternoon after his midday nap, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed... I wonder what that word actually is. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. I can't explain that. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's also important. Notice he's not an... Hello. Notice he is not an Israelite. He's a Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, Hey, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Hang in there. This is, this is a great story. I mean, this is the stuff that miniseries are made of. Oh my God, it's got everything. Um, so anyway, he's making small talk. And then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah did not go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance on the floor with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him again and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The Ark of the Covenant And the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear, I would never do such a thing. Okay, plan A did not work. 
plan B is not turning out well. So David says, stay here today and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. This is always a useful plan. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance on the floor of the king's palace garden. This is where it gets seriously awful. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull the rest of the troops back so that he will be killed. Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting, and when the enemy's soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed, along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king, but he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him? Egad. I've never heard anybody preach on that. Why? <laughs> That sounds interesting. There's a story there, right? All right. Why would you get so close to the wall? Then, if he gets, you know, irritated, then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed also. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open field, etc., etc., etc. The king's men were killed, including, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, Joab, not to be discouraged. Oh, so David says, well, tell Joab not to be discouraged. David said, the sword devours one this day and one the next day. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his many, many wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord, it says, was displeased with what David had done. I don't know if your mom ever did this. When she's irritated, she may raise the volume on her voice. When she's mad, she'll double it. But when she's furious, she'll get very quiet. And everything is understated. Oh, the Lord was displeased. We're not talking about a minor character in world history making a small mistake. This is David, God's favorite, chosen and anointed. And the Lord was displeased with what he had done. Why? Because David had choices. And throughout this part of his story, he consistently made 
the wrong ones. And this is what can happen with power and the privileges that come with it. We make the choice that our power and our privilege allow us to make, and we ignore the consequences. Consequences for us and consequences maybe for lots of other people. Power at any level and in any context, whether you're a presidential candidate or you're an eighth grader, power at any level and in any context has its own stealth cloaking device. Its own stealth cloaking device. Those who have power very often don't see it. Not seeing it, they fail to recognize the ways in which it takes on a life of its own. Not recognizing this, they fail to implement safeguards against power's unregulated influence. You've heard the saying, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts. Right. But there are always choices. And the first choice all of us can make in any tight spot, doesn't matter what it is, the first choice is to pay attention. There's a reason they call it paying attention. It costs. It costs energy, time, thought. Pay attention to the clues in your peripheral vision, the ones that are tapping you on the shoulder. David had plenty of clues. It was spring, time for a war. I usually think it's time to mow the lawn and pull the maple seedlings. <laughs> but there it was, oh, the rain is done. It's time for, a, let's have a war, yeah. <laughs> In spite of this, David abdicated his responsibility while Joab and the troops rode into danger. This was unthinkable. This was unthinkable. The king was the commander-in-chief in person, always. In spite of this, David abdicated... Oh, I read that. David neglected his other kingly duties. Can you imagine the paperwork? Oh my gosh. He neglected his other kingly duties and instead took naps or stared out his window. He summoned a beautiful married woman to the palace for sex when he already had hundreds of wives and concubines. He might have remembered everybody's name, but I kind of doubt it. When she reported she was pregnant, David panicked and devised a scheme that would eliminate the loyal, faithful, committed husband of Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite. And I wonder, was it easier to implement this scheme because Uriah was an immigrant? David mur murdered his competition simply because he wanted Bathsheba. At that moment, Uriah, the dead soldier, was in every imaginable way a better man than the living king. David missed all these and many other clues. 
The self-cloaking device on his power and privilege was working overtime. I think of the way we use our power, and I think of it like one of those telescoping ladders. Do you have one in your garage? You know, when they're all folded up there like that, so you can stick it in the trunk of your car? Even your VW bug. But then you grab the end and you stretch it, and you've got a 12-foot ladder. We have one of those. I was going to bring it. Actually, it's in my trunk. And uh, I thought about showing you, and then I thought, no, too dangerous. Uh, So imagine somebody with this 12-foot ladder, and they want to go shopping at an antique store. They get the ladder lined up with the door. They walk in. All is good. They're going down the central aisle of the store, and then somebody at the front desk says, can I help you? Thousands of dollars of damage. He doesn't know where the ends of the ladder are. And we don't know where our power reaches. We have to pay attention. The next choice we have is to Adopt the perspective of those whom our power impacts. And this takes some ruthless honesty. When I was teaching, I came to understand that although I didn't consider myself very important, I was in fact a representative of a large and sometimes oppressive institution. What I said or did with a student was magnified by this fact. That's why I made a practice of standing outside my classroom door to greet hundreds of students entering the building every morning. I smiled. If I knew their name, I used it. If I didn't, I just said, good morning. I did this for students I liked and for students I didn't like. I did it for students who liked me and those who didn't like me. Everybody gets a smile, and a good morning. I did it because from a student's perspective, seeing a teacher who is nice to you, just nice, could make your day. For far too many of my students, school was the safest, happiest part of their life, no matter how much they complained. And I knew that. I tried to always keep it in mind. Adopt the perspective of those who are affected by your power. The last one, practice. Just do it. Do it over and over and over. Pay attention. Adopt someone's perspective. It is not easy. I'll tell you, it's hard. And that's how we know that it's important. It's hard, therefore, important. Paying attention, adopting the perspective of the other, and practicing those skills. Do we have time for one more story? It's not a funny story, but it's true. My friend Bob helped me paint my farmhouse in Adrian, Michigan. He loved to help people. At one point, he was a Catholic priest working in Central America. He was out in the villages. And one day, a villager brought to him 
the shell casing, uh, a large mortar shell casing like so. And the villager said, uh, I, I, I don't even know what it is, but, uh, or where it came from, um, but I'll bury it. That's what, I'll just bury it. And Bob said, mm, no, you don't have to bury it. Why don't you give it to me instead? Bob, and this is in a context of constant war, okay, in Central America at the time. Bob took this huge shell casing, looked at it carefully, and noticed on the inside inscribed the company name Honeywell. This was an American bomb. What was it doing there? Bob eventually got through, and it took, I think, more than a year, he eventually got through to somebody in the Defense Department. And that shell casing became the first hard evidence in a chain of evidence that uncovered the Iran-Contra scandal, in which, illegally, uh, leaders of our nation had um, approved the sale of arms to Iran and then the sending of that money to a counterinsurgent group in Nicaragua. Thousands of people died. Thousands. And that's pretty impressive. I mean, Bob got chased through the villages at night. He heard gunfire whizzing around his head. He saw helicopters landing in nearby fields and yelling soldiers and all the rest. But the thing that Bob had to say about this was simply, my life isn't any more important than somebody else's. My life isn't more important than anybody else's. I'm educated, I'm American, uh, I'm a priest, I'm a very smart man. My life isn't any more important than somebody else's. Let's pray together. Father, it isn't easy to pay attention it isn't easy to reimagine who we are in this world, in a circle of friends or in larger circles. But we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will make our vision of ourselves, our power, our privileges, acute and possibly uncomfortable and show us what to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Hayden. I, um, you know, when we first met to talk, I think, about the sermon, maybe three weeks ago, we went to the Ugly Mug and we were chatting, and he was trying to get an idea of what I was looking for. 
And so I tossed out the idea of like, well, you know, maybe a good story would be David in the cave, and he's standing over Saul, King Saul, who was trying to kill him, and he decides to not kill him when he could. And I was like, maybe that would be a great uh, talking about how we use power. And Hayden said, actually, the more interesting story is how does he get from Batman to the one who kills Uriah? Like, what happens to him in between those two things where it seems like his character begins to corrupt? And I said, oh, you're right. Go for that. That sounds really good. And I think you hit on something really insightful, and that just seems to be like the more power we have, the easier it is to not have empathy. And that's something to be aware of. I think empathy is probably like our biggest issue in our culture right now. And just thinking about how we follow a God and can hopefully be shaped by this path where we have a God who was the God, the king of the universe, who so empathized with us that he became a human and experienced all of the, the trials and temptations and hurts that we did, and that we can be shaped and informed by this path of following him to be able to think about how people who have less power than us feel. So thank you so much, Aiden. I think that was really beautiful.